This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 19. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 19, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. And here I am with a fresh cup of coffee in my hand. The French press is sitting here waiting for me to finish it off. And I'm ready to present to you yet another fantastic interview today with, of course, Bay Area engineer, Matt Kelly. Uh, Let's see, who's Matt worked with? Tupac. He did the Tupacalypse Now record, engineered and mixed that. He's worked with, of course, Jello Biafra. Yes, Jello Biafra, the Dead Kennedys. He's worked on several of those records. DJ Kubert, Dell the Funky Homo Sapien. I'm going to run out of breath here. Digital Underground. Uh, hieroglyphics, Imperial Teen, uh, the coup. Yeah, guy's been around the block. Now, a little bit different today. We, we, Matt and I had a Skype call, but we, we tried a new, a new technique here. Don't mean to scare you, but I recorded my part into my Pro Tools rig, and Matt recorded his part into his Pro Tools rig, and we have combined our audio. So that's what you will hear. So you will get pretty good audio for once. Yeah. I appreciate your tolerance with the Skype calls. Of course, sometimes they get a little nutty. So Matt proposed that we do that. And I thought that's a great idea. So coming up, Matt Kelly, let's see. Hey, what's new? We're on Instagram now. Just signed up a little while ago. We're at, looks like, uh, working underscore class underscore audio. Head on over to Instagram and follow us. Occasionally, I'll post some random pictures, and I swear I won't continually post pictures of me drinking coffee in front of a microphone, but that's the first one I took, and it's right there. So that's about it. Working Class Audio, of course, is growing. We're spreading out to all the different ways you can hear us, of course, on SoundCloud, on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of that. Spreading the wings far and wide. All right, let's get to our interview with Matt Kelly here on Working Class Audio. And uh, thanks for being here. Here we are, Matt Kelly on Working Class Audio. So have you had an opportunity to listen to anybody else's podcast? Actually, I have. Yeah, I listened to John Cudaberti's podcast this morning. I listened to uh, Michael Starita's last night. So I, I have had a chance to, uh, to, to, to check them out. It's interesting how, uh, how I find out about it. Like within a week, three or four people contacted me and said, have you checked out this working class class audio? Uh, do you know Matt Bedreau? And I was like, oh, yeah, I did a session at his studio when it was still on Mission Street. I think you might remember that. It was the Jello Biafra session where we came in with all sorts of bits of metal from the junkyard, basically. With John? 57 share- yeah, with John, with, with John Weiss, exactly. It was uh, crazy. All sorts of just crazy bits of metal and plastic that you would find at a junkyard, basically. And then uh, put up a couple of really nice room mics and then uh, attached contact mics to the stuff. And uh, it turned out to be to the to the pieces of metal. And it was a really fun session. That was my foray into broken radio. Well, that's that's cool that uh, people alerted you to the podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, I talked to uh, Patrick over at Different Fur, and he said, you know, you'd be a, a, a good match. They are looking for uh, people who actually do this. And uh, then a friend of mine who was really into 
all the hip hop stuff I did in the nineties uh, also called me and said, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? And I, and I was like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It sounds like fun. And he's like, make sure you talk a lot about the nineties and hip hop. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yes. I remember first hearing about you uh, with regards to digital underground. Then of course you, you worked with Delta, uh, the funky homo sapien and you've, you worked with Tupac. Yeah, absolutely. I don't normally ask about what what that was like, but I'm I'm very curious. What was it like to work with Tupac? We met during the Digital Underground sessions. Before he actually started rapping for Digital Underground, he was like on stage as a dancer mostly. So uh, we met during the uh, Digital Underground sessions, and he uh, was uh, at that point uh, an aspiring writer, rapper, stuff like that. But to answer your question, very very professional. I found him to be an, a, a very introspective artist, very uh -huh. serious about his work, very, very professional. All of our sessions pretty much happened in the middle of the night for a couple of reasons. First, uh, that was when the studio, Hyde Street Studios at the time, was offering their best rates. You could get a, uh, a lockout, uh, an eight-hour lockout from midnight to eight in the morning for about $300. It made the studio cost effective for a, a lot of different recording artists. But for Tupac in particular, I think that one of the reasons that he liked to work in the middle of the night was because it definitely minimized the amount of people who were just hanging out, partying without very much to do on the session, but just kind of hanging out and, you know, the, the hanger hangers on, as I like to call them. Do you think that was a conscious conscious decision on on his part too? Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you were on a Tupac session, you were there to work. There was very little in the way of uh, people just hanging out and partying or hanging out to take in the experience. He wow. wanted everybody on the session to actually have a, a purpose, a function, to actually be there doing work with him. So yeah, uh, it was very professional vibe. He's a very professional cat. I guess I can elaborate on session flow, how it kind of went with Tupac. Um, sure. Generally the first part of the session, we would generally come in with the idea of doing three songs. Okay. So back then we were, this was back in the sampling day. So people would be coming in, generally speaking, with uh, an Akai MPC-60 or MPC-3000, sometimes an SP-1200. So we would spend the first part of the session actually tracking out the song. Fortunately, back then, those devices had some uh, some nice sync capabilities. Since everything was on two-inch tape, I would go ahead and stripe the tape with empty time code. Send that into the uh, device, whether it be the Akai, whatever, you know, tell the, tell the sequencer basically where the song was going to start, what the tempo was. And then in usually two or three passes per song, we would have all the sounds that we need. What was nice about the Akai and the uh, SP-1200 is they had lots of outputs on them. You know, we had like eight outs. So in two or three passes, we could multi-track the entire song. So that would usually be the first couple of hours of the session. And then uh, we would spend a couple of hours doing vocals. At, while we were actually recording the song, it wasn't unusual for Tupac to be uh, in the live room writing the lyrics for each song. I think he came, always came in with an idea, but he was generally also writing while we were, uh, while we were uh, tracking the beats. Uh, then we'd spend, um, you know, a couple hours maybe uh, tracking his vocals. And then the last part of the session would be getting a mix. 
Wow. And would that mix be, uh, you know, something to commit to? I think we did commit to a couple of them. uh, But generally speaking, it was more of a rough, more of a, you know, just kind of a, this is what we did. This is, you know, kind of like maybe a daily to use a film term. Oh, sure. Yeah. On the label. This is, this is, uh, this is what we, what we did. When I was actually mixing for them, they were dedicated mix sessions. Um, We would generally tend to get a mix in a day. So that's kind of an idea about the workflow okay. uh, with Tupac. In the 90s, with a lot of the hip-hop that you were working on, uh, how did uh, how did you get into working with some of these these folks? Because, like, you've worked with, I mean, Digital Underground, Tupac, Delta, the Funky Homo Sapien. I mean, those are some real heavy-duty folks. How did yeah. you find yourself in the fortunate position to be working with them? Well, it's an interesting story. It kind of starts off uh, when I was uh, working at Hyde Street. I started working at Hyde Street in the late 80s. You know, hip-hop was definitely in its infancy back then. Uh, It started off, I had been doing some assisting engineering work for an engineer at Hyde Street who was kind of taking on the hip-hop mantle. You have to understand that back then, it was the Wild West. Um, There were no hard and fast rules for hip-hop at all. If you could uh, sync the machines and record the vocals, then you were doing pretty good. And when you say sync the machines, are we we're talking about the, the two-inch and, and maybe uh, the, the samplers? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You were doing great if you could do you know that kind of work. So anyway, I did some assisting um, for a couple of projects, and it's interesting how the Digital Underground, this is one of my favorite music business stories, actually, how the Digital Underground came about. You know, There were a number of engineers at Hyde Street at the time not a lot of people were interested in working in hip hop. Everybody wanted to be a rock and roll engineer or, you know, something or a pop music engineer or punk rock engineer, something along those lines. So there wasn't a ton of interest in hip hop amongst the engineering community at the time. So what happened was High um, uh, Street got a phone call from a band, hip hop band, uh, that was in desperate need of some studio time. They had been working at a recording studio in Richmond called Richmond, California, called Starlight. And I guess the tape machine had malfunctioned. Not an uncommon problem with Studer 800s back in the day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And they were desperate. I mean, they were really under really significant deadlines, and they needed to find a studio quick. So uh, they called Hyde Street. You know, it was so last second, um, a lot of uh, the other more senior people, had senior engineers had commitments that they had. So... uh, the studio manager at that point said, well, you've assisted on some hip hop sessions. Is this something that you would like to try? Would you like to try firsting on this, on this hip hop session? Of course I was down. I was like, yeah, for sure. I would love to, you know, I was into recording everything and anything that I possibly could. The, the night comes that uh, we're going to be doing work and a session is scheduled to start at midnight, run until eight in the morning. So I'm there at uh, 11 o'clock, getting the machines calibrated, getting ready to go, getting set up. Wasn't sure what to expect. I had an, an idea about what to expect, but you kind of never know in this business what's going to happen. And so uh, it's midnight, and then it's 1 o'clock in the morning, nobody's there. 2 o'clock in the morning, nobody's there. And I'm like, okay, these guys are, are not going to show. I'm not going to waste my whole night. I'll give them till three o'clock. If they're not there, I'm just going to call it a night and take off. Well, at 2.59 and about 45 seconds, uh, the phone rings. The band is, uh, is outside, raring to go. 
So, uh, yeah, literally. Taking a cue from Keith Richards. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we get going, and that night we record two songs, I think. One of them is a song called Packet Man, and the other one is Freaks of the Industry, Digital Underground. And we, uh, you know, essentially do the, the same workflow I was talking about, track the beat, track the vocals. Uh, with Digital Underground, uh, uh, we also track some live piano. And there you had it. They booked the next night where we did a couple more songs. They came back in and said, oh, yeah, we really liked it. Man, these rough mixes sound fantastic. We want you to do some mixing for some of the stuff we recorded. We're going to record a couple more songs. And so it went. At this point, nobody had heard of Digital Underground. And then literally a few months later, Sex Packets, uh, the album, is released. Humpty Dance becomes a platinum top 10 single. The album goes gold. And I am all of a sudden a hip-hop engineer. And you are inundated with phone calls, I would assume. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Mostly from uh, spin-off groups from Digital Underground. But then, you know, all of us, you know, all sorts of people are starting to get in touch with me. The coup, hieroglyphics, you know, Dell, Souls of Mischief, uh, Souls of Mischief. Any number, anybody who wants to get into a studio who's doing hip hop is, is giving me a phone call and checking on my availability. So that's kind of how I ended up being in the hip hop world. Wow. Certainly, uh, yeah, as you know, people talk about lucky breaks, and I certainly got one that night. Ha imagine had I decided to go home, how my life would have been different. But uh, at the same time, um, I think it's also very important to note that. It's true. Lucky breaks are super important in this business. But when you get that lucky break, you definitely have to be there with the skills. I'm just so blown away by that story because I'm just thinking, well, what if you went, nah, I don't want to do a hip hop record. I don't know about that. I mean, at that time, a lot of funk and thrash metal was thriving in the Bay Area. Yeah, absolutely. Psycho Funkopus. Uh, Exodus. Uh, yeah, Exodus, World Entertainment War. That's what that's what the engineers wanted to do. I remember that. I remember that's what was popular. Um, so you took a chance, and uh, boy, does that ever speak to keeping an open mind and just trying anything and getting involved? Well, absolutely. But also, uh, it's important for me to point out that my mentor, one of my, I have several mentors, as we all do in this business, but one of my main mentors, engineer named Mark Needham, who pretty much anybody in the Bay Area uh, who has done music over the last 20 years will know that name from all sorts of bands, including Chris Isaac, lately The Killers, Fleetwood Mac, Taj Mahal. One thing he told me uh, when I was assist assisting for him, he, one thing he, a point that he really drove home to me is that you record everything, okay? If there's work, you take it. There is no not doing a session. And it doesn't matter what kind of music it is. If you have an opportunity to record or mix, you take it, no matter what. Hmm. Um, and that is a very, very important lesson. I think that if you're going to be an engineer, especially in this day and age, you have to have an extremely broad scale of experiences. It's not enough that, oh, I'd like to do hip hop or I'd like to do uh, uh, thrash. You have to be ready to record an Irish jug band if that is the session of the day. So, How do you feel? I mean, with that, that approach, there's a lot of amateurs out there today, amateur musicians. 
I kind of feel like the professionalism and the level of musicianship is not exactly the same. But would you disagree or agree with that? I'm not sure that I totally agree with that. Um, okay. I I, uh, I would say that I find that there is sometimes a prevailing attitude amongst musicians now that didn't exist back in the day that is, well, I'm going to lay down a bunch of tracks and you're just going to comp together something that you like in Pro Tools rather than back in the day where it was just like, yeah, I have these parts. We're going to work until we get them right. Yeah. So maybe there's a little bit more laziness involved where perhaps musicians are expecting that the engineer is going to do a lot more work, you know, is going to utilize the tools that are available to make them sound better. But I don't know whether musicianship itself has suffered. I still work with uh, youngsters and OGs alike who are at the top of their game and really blow me away. So. Okay. A musician that I was working with on a session, uh, he hit it on the nose for me. He, he essentially said what you said. He said, you know, back in the day, all the uh, responsibility laid on the musician's shoulders to do their parts and do it right. And the engineer was there to capture properly. But now... The roles are reversed. The responsibility is is on the engineer to not only capture, but help them get it right through manipulation. I think that's always been a little bit of the case, perhaps uh, more so the capturing back in the day. As a as a engineer, the the role between engineer and producer sometimes that those lines get pretty blurry. So even back in the day, uh, there were, you know, I found that musicians were sometimes asking for advice. What would you do? How would, you know, how would you phrase this? Um, what do you think of these chord progressions? Is it working? Stuff like that. Maybe now they actually want you to like, as I said, they, they want you, uh, they want to like just lay down a bunch of stuff and have you kind of do most of the work. Mm -hmm. But even back in the 90s, even back in the day before Pro Tools, we were still doing it ton of comping on everything, especially vocals, but we would comp anything that we could. Probably comping bass was my least favorite thing to comp. I have to say that. You talk about like, man, there's this is just not super fun. Comping bass is not one of them. But comping vocals on the other hand, for those, I'm pretty sure everybody knows what comping is, but yeah. pretty much you take a variety of tracks and you make a composite of, of the best parts of each one. And that was kind of hard back in the day because, you know, we were working on tape. So you had to have serious fader skills, you know, crossfading between tracks, punching, that sort of stuff in order to come up with a good composite. Things are a lot easier digitally now, just like, oh, well, this region here, that region there, bump, 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 I can be done quickly. But the theory is still the same. Even back then, it was just like, yeah, our guitar player or a vocalist is going to come in, do a bunch of takes, and we're going to like make a composite of the best ones. What are um, now? I'm going to just jump straight out of the studio and right into the pocketbook. What uh, <laughs> what financial lessons over the years have you really learned? Well, I'd say first off, bite the bullet, get an accountant to uh, handle your taxes, get a good tax person. There are a few businesses that. Uh, California Franchise Tax Board and the uh, 
Internal Revenue Service really, really hate, and the music business is one of them. I think it's because they just know that there's a lot of underground economy going on. If you are a great recording engineer, chances are that you are not a stellar accountant. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, I learned that lesson. So uh, first things first, it's really important to have a uh, have somebody who's taking care of that part of your life for you. Have I been burned? Hell yes, I've been burned. Uh, a shit ton of times, you know, especially in my younger years. And I think that the thing there is uh, you have to sometimes not be the nice engineer when it comes to this sort of stuff and be pretty hardcore. That's a difficult thing to do when you're just getting going because you're like, oh, if I offend this person, uh, they're never going to work with me or that sort of stuff that those kind of thoughts run through your mind. You have to stand up for yourself. Again, I really think that if you can, it's important to find somebody to help you with those things. You know, constant, being successful at anything is is going to be a collaborative effort, I think. There are very, very few people I know in this in this world who can do it all, who can, let's say, be a recording engineer, producer, a business manager, a studio owner, um, a, a tax preparer, um, a collection agency. <laughs> so... Get some help. Understand, realize what your limitations are. Concentrate on what you you are good at doing and then find other people to help you out with things that you're not so good at. Hell, it's it's not just the business thing. It's everything, especially uh, marketing and stuff like that. Again, you might be a great engineer, a great producer, but you may have a very difficult time. You may not have the skills developed to be to come up with a really good marketing plan for yourself or the desire um, well there's that i mean also like yeah i mean i i guess i haven't hit on that one enough especially with things like managing your business after you've been in the studio for 12 hours the last thing you really want to do is go home and check out all your accounts receivable you know do that part of managing your business but understand especially youngsters out there understand this that it is called the music business. It is not studio fun. It is not music fun. This is this is a business. And if you are going to be successful at it, you have to treat it as such. So again, I'm getting back, get some getting back to my original point, which is concentrate on the things that you do well and get help with the things that that you need help with. So obviously you I assume you have a, a good accountant. I do, yes. Oh yeah. She's uh, she's yeah, she's she's something else. <laughs> Even when I do things right, I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, she has very little patience with me. But fortunately, she's been uh, doing the music business thing for a long time. So she doesn't immediately want to kill me all the time. Do you uh, work with any marketing people? Uh, I have worked with marketing people in the past, and uh, we've come up with some business plans and stuff like that. You know, in terms of marketing, I also have some uh, web guides that I work with, mm -hmm. which is important uh, just to, you know, have a presence. I do some of my own marketing uh, via Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff like that. But when it comes to, you know, some of the heavier stuff, website, uh, I, I, I have people who help me out, which is a good thing because lately I've had a few problems with my website and I am clueless when it comes to that stuff stuff really i mean i've even been to the checked out all the forums online and stuff like that and you think there's jargon in the music business you know go to a go to a tech talk on website design sometime it'll blow your mind 
It's like learning a brand new language from another planet. Absolutely. Just like, are are you kidding me? Seriously? Oh, my goodness. It it, it can be disillusioning, actually. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely uh, having a a base of people who can help you out um, is great. And I'm going to specifically use the case of the website. Uh, Fortunately, uh, the guys who I... uh, work with also are musicians. And uh, so we get to trade services periodically. Let's talk about the economics of how you're operating now. I'm skipping a, a load of history uh, in many years of experience that have passed by, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what's your MO these days as far as, like, personally, I'm, I mix at my house. I track at other studios. I'm trying to sure, yeah. minimize the amount uh, or, or max, I should say, I, ma- I try to maximize the budgets that I'm given. That's the way to go. That's how I do it too. Really, it all depends on the project, what the requirements of the project are. Then you factor in budget, okay? We need to get this amount of work done. We need to get this kind of work done. And we have this budget ready to go. So my modus operandi is pretty much to do Figure out what's going to work best for the band, how we're going to get the most bang for the buck. And that's going to depend uh, quite a bit on the genre and uh, uh, that, that I'm working on and the requirements of that genre. You know, if I'm going to be doing a hip-hop thing, I don't need to go to uh, uh, Studio Trilogy or uh, 25th Street in Oakland to record my, my basic tracks. I can do largely some of that at home. I can do some vocals at home. I can even do some mixing at home. However, if I'm going to be doing a punk rock project and they want to do live basics, uh, that's going to change the dynamics quite a bit about how we work. So, you know, I'd say that really it just comes down to finding out, figuring out uh, what the best uh, match is between uh, for the band and the available services. Um, around town. So, and then logistics too. Um, You know, if I'm going to be working with a band from the North Bay, I'm going to be probably checking out North Bay Studios. It's a lot easier for me to head up to Petaluma or Katati or wherever the case might be than bring four or five guys down to the city every day. So it really is project driven. It's difficult to come up with, okay, this is how I do everything. Cause Mm -hmm. you know, in this day and age, um, you have to be super adaptable. Because budgets aren't there yet at the same time, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, there are a number of very, very cool recording options that don't cost a ton of money and that are very effective for whatever kind of project that you're working on. So as far as your rate, do you have a rate that you stick to? Uh, Michael Starita spoke about that. You know, there's a, there's a podcast up with Billy Anderson and Billy talked about uh, doing sliding scale. Yeah, I kind of, I I tend to do a sliding scale. I'll let people know that, hey, look, I'm either super booked up. So, you know, if you want me, it's going to cost more money or I'm in a slow period right now and I can, uh, I'm in a situation to offer some, uh, some deals or some perks. Another thing too, I think it's important uh, is to also give back. There are 
projects that I will work with and have worked with and continue to work with that I really like where there just isn't much of a budget available. But I want to do them. So I figure out a way to do them. And that's pretty much the way it goes. Mm -hmm. But I don't have any hard and fast rules other than pay me. <laughs> that's the hardest <laughs> and fastest rule. I mean, if you owe me money, go ahead and pay me. So when it comes to um, getting paid, do you offer do you offer a credit card option to your clients? Oh, yeah, I do Square. I think everybody's either doing Square or pay PayPal now. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially in this day and age, oh, there isn't a, a ton of money, you know, cash, cash, just sitting around. The last couple of big records that I did were largely funded on credit cards. So, you know, taking credit cards became a necessity. And especially with a company like Square, it's just become super easy. You plug the the uh, uh, scanner sensor right into your phone and it's a done deal. So uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't be taking credit cards other than they take a little bit of the money. So, but... Yeah, that, that happens everywhere. You know, that's just the reality of dealing with credit cards. So, so I want to talk about some mistakes. If I, when I say that, when I say mistakes, do you immediately go, "Oh shit, I, I have a story for you"? No, I probably have about a dozen stories. For oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that um, one mistake that everybody makes. I mean, I've always been uh, very much a proponent of of making sure everything is backed up. Especially in this all crushed digital world, it's super it's super easy to make backups of everything that you do, you know. And now it's super cost effective with uh, drive space being so cheap. I remember one where I, you know, was backed up, but I wasn't super redundantly backed up, and I ended up having some data loss. And I was like, that is never ever going to happen to me again. So now every project lives on three different drives. Hmm. Um, the actual production drive, a backup drive that I keep on site, and then a third backup drive that lives with the client. Listen, unless there's an earthquake or a major catastrophe, flood, fire, something like that, I know that my project is going to be there to, to be recovered. What are, you, right? are you using a specific software to, to back up? No, I just copy everything onto another drive, basically. I am now triple redundant. So that was a mistake, only uh, just backing up to one thing. Uh, there was a uh, catastrophe and both drives were lost. And uh, I didn't lose a lot of data, but I, I lost enough to piss people off. So, oh. um, and that's definitely, uh, you know, something that uh, you learn from quick and that you don't ever let happen again. Also super important to really just maintain super clear communications with everybody about what's happening. In the, in the spirit of communication, can you be clear about that? Yeah. Uh, for instance, I was doing a project and there was not clear communication between, let's say, uh, between everybody in the band. And uh, one guy, without really having spoke with the vocalist, said, oh, yeah, we're not keeping any of these vocals. This is back in the two-inch days. We're not keeping any of these vocals. Um, so go ahead and erase them. And I was like, well, I'm kind of not sure about that. But I went ahead and did it, and it turned out that uh, the vocalist did indeed want to uh, keep all of those vocals, and it kind of came down. Well, it was my fault because I didn't talk to him, even though I had spoken with the, with the other guy in the band and blah, blah, blah. It was, just, uh, it was just a nightmare. You know, keeping very clear channels about what's happening, when it's happening, 
Uh, stuff like that is super important. Also, uh, little things like uh, never be late. I remember the first time I was late for an assisting engineering gig uh, with my mentor, Mark Needham. Um, he basically gorilla fucked me for being late. It was like the most horrible chewing out that I think I've ever gotten in the music business. Wow. Some other things would be you really have to uh, be on point, knowing exactly what's happening all the time. Things are a little easier now. The kids have a little easier in this uh, in the digital world because there is this you know quick command called Command Z undo. Now, back in the day of tape, there was no quick command. There was no undo. There was no command Z option. So if you punched at the wrong place, uh, put the wrong track and record ready, stuff like that, you were screwed. I mean, that was a real major catastrophe. So it's like uh, those were those are mistakes that I think every engineer kind of back in the day made. They don't come up as much now just because the technology is such that you don't have to worry about that sort of stuff. And it's also like, uh, you know, just, again, just being super aware about what's going on. Really, uh, uh, you know, when you're recording, when you're capturing the sound, it's really important that you're paying very, very close attention to everything technical. Is this limiter hitting too hard? Um, you're really paying attention, I think, more to the way things are sounding rather than the performance. But that's just my opinion about being an engineer. So. When it comes to your sessions or the projects that you do, let's just say that you're not being hired as a producer. You're just being hired to engineer and yeah. potentially mix the record. Like, how keen are you on all the aspects of, of prep for a session? Like, if you got back-to-back -back work... Uh, now, I still make time for pre-production. That's really important. I will... Even if I have back-to-back -back work, before I start a recording session, I will do a tour of the studio with the band. I'll get them in a day or two ahead of time, whatever the case might be, and I'll show them the room. I'll show them the live room. I'll show them the recording, the control room. We'll go through the live room, and we'll kind of talk about how we're going to set up, uh, who's going to be where what to expect in terms of sight lines, in terms of how long it will take to set up, in terms of headphones and stuff like that. I'll also spend some time with a band in practice. Back in the day, I had a, both a portable DAP machine and a portable cassette player, and I would go in and, and record a practice if for no other reason, just so I had an idea about the form of the songs. And now I just bring in my little portable digital recorder. And I still do that. Uh, I think that uh, prep is really important when it comes to, uh, especially going into a big studio to do work. There, you know, you don't want to spend any unnecessary time messing around with the things that should be thought out ahead of time, really. So, yeah. So even even if even if I am super busy, uh, there is a certain amount of uh, pre-production and prep work that goes into any project that I do. Yeah. I would you agree that <clears throat> psychologically, if a band is hiring you to engineer, maybe they consider it a, a a bonus that you stop by rehearsal because there's a lot of unspoken things that happen as a result. You get to know everybody if they're strangers. Yeah, you, sure. Uh, you no. get to know the songs. Yeah, absolutely which is kind of the whole point. Um, also, I think it instills a lot of trust uh, in the band. Uh, you know, if you're taking the time to go out, oftentimes unpaid, uh, to check out the band in a rehearsal situation, to bring them into the studio prior to the recording, uh, so everybody to make everybody feel comfortable, 
uh, you instill a lot of trust in that band. They're mm-hmm. like, wow, this guy is really into us, you know? And it's just like, yeah, I trust him. It's going to make the whole creative process all that much more fun for everybody because they're not like, well, maybe this guy's just doing this for some bread or whatever the case might be. You know, they, they tend to trust you a lot more. And I, and again, I still do that all the time. Any band that I work with, we're going to spend some time together before we actually start, before we, you know, go into the studio and start recording. How do you feel about band members getting involved and asking a lot of questions about the process? I'd say, bring it on. Anything you want to know, I'm willing to talk about. As long as, you know, we're working and not, you know, as long as it's not a teaching session. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm happy to, to like run down anything that I want to do, but there is kind of a place and time for that a little bit. When we are getting a drum sound is not the time to be talking about um, what microphones we're going to be using on guitar. Although I'll answer the question. One thing I think is kind of important. One thing that I do, what I like to do is I also like to involve the band in the process if they are willing to get involved. It's been surprising to me over the years. It seems to me that the youngsters, you know, let's say musicians who are I'll call it youngster less than 35 just to keep everybody happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they are interested in participating in the sessions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I will put them to work. In the case, let's say, of a hip hop band, if we're in a studio mixing, it's just as easy for me to show an indiv- a guy in the band the rudiments of console automation. Okay. If you want to mute, press this button here. If you'd like to mute, yeah. If not, then just go into right here. That way I can take a little ear break. They can actually do some work. They feel very engaged in their process, and it's a win-win situation for everybody. And I'm never very far away. If they get into trouble, I can come bail them out quick. It's interesting, though, that the older guys that I work with generally tend to be a little bit more intimidated by everything. It's the younger guys who kind of embrace the technology. The older guys just like, no, I don't want to touch anything. I might screw something up or... It's just like, well, there really isn't anything to screw up here, you know. But uh, for me, anyway, it's always been important to uh, always make the, always keep the band feeling like they are a part of the record, you know, that it's their record and they are working on it along with me rather than I am just doing everything and they are along for the ride. I think that one of the biggest complaints that I get from artists these days when they're working with uh, young engineers is that they feel a little disconnected. Everything is happening so fast. The guy is whizzing along on Pro Tools and they start to feel a little disconnected from their own project. They're not sure what's going on here. They're just kind of like, okay, this guy obviously knows what he's doing. He's really fast. Maybe he's moving too quickly though. Do, 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 do you understand what I mean? It's like, yeah, you uh, know, I think in the in the analog days, maybe uh, there was a more methodical, slower pace because you didn't have the undo capability. And, sure. And the tapes were well, all in there in front of you. So you kind of, you understand when, are we in record? Are we playing back? What's going on? Absolutely. I mean, hey, you know, the tape has to rewind, you know, that few minutes that it takes, that's, or, you know, uh, amount of time that it takes the tape to rewind is, is, is a point for commentary. I, but I would say that, that that's a generational thing, too, of, a, of a, you know, guys like you and me who grew up in the age where we had cassettes and we understand or understood what fast forward and rewound, rewind meant. But sure, yeah. younger guys now, like I'm, I'm just thinking like there's 
guys that are like, you know, in their 20s that are, are great musicians, but they'll never know that concept. That's true. That's uh, a foreign but, idea. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I mean, that's just the reality. Things do change. Again, just touching on what I was saying. It's just like, yeah, I mean, for me anyway, it's it's kind of getting back to the original question. It's it's very important for me to keep the band engaged in the in the process. And if I can put them to work, I will. Absolutely. Well, how do you do that in a Pro Tools environment these days? How do you keep the pace of the session so that everybody's feeling like we're moving along, but we're not moving along at such a, a pace that they don't know what's going on? I just, over the years, have managed to keep the same kind of work pace going. Not, not, I mean, like I was, I guess people thought I was uh, pretty quick as an analog engineer. Maybe I'm kind of slow as a Pro Tools engineer. I certainly have friends who just blow my mind on Pro Tools with how fast they are and what they can get accomplished. I just maintaining a dialogue with the band, making sure everybody knows what's going on, making sure that everybody has an opportunity to voice their opinions when they think they need to, stuff like that. I think that kind of keeps the pace at uh, a clip where everybody can feel comfortable. It's when you when people start to feel like they're shut out of the process because things are going too quick, I think is when I, as an engineer, start to run into problems, mm -hmm. you know? There's a certain psychology, social psychology involved, too. You can kind of tell when somebody is uh, engaged and when they're not. And so if I sense that somebody's becoming kind of, if, I'm, if I sense that I'm moving too fast for somebody, I'll slow it down. Mm -hmm. Much like if I feel like I'm not moving fast enough, I'll speed it up. So The role of the smartphone in the studio, every artist has a different uh, philosophy about it and uh, attitude towards it. How do you feel about the artist uh, basically kind of playing tourist in, the, in their own sessions where they're more concerned with possibly posting pictures to Facebook about the session than actually doing the work of the session? Have you ever encountered... <laughs> Stuff like that. I, I don't. <laughs> that has not come up yet. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, certainly there are, I, I will be doing sessions where, uh, yep, there will be some pictures taken uh, where stuff will end up on Facebook. But the, by and large, the vast, vast majority of my clients are not in the studio for that. Not at all. Okay. You know, we're working. That's good. You know, I mean, uh, I'd say that uh, if uh, iPhones and Androids are coming into the recording sessions, a lot of times they're coming in as tuners, <laughs> guitar tuners, <laughs> bass tuners, stuff like that. SPL meters. Yeah, yeah, right. Real-time analyzers, stuff like that. Or they're uh, coming in as just, you know, little digital recorders for ideas, lyric ideas, guitar licks, bass licks, stuff like that. So I, I haven't noticed that where people are like in the studio mostly for a social op or for a photo op, you know? Let's talk a little money and a little equipment. What's your, um, do you have a, an approach these days to uh, equipment acquisition Gear lust? Do you try to not overindulge, or do you do you just love collecting gear and you'll get everything you can? No, I. Uh, you know what I like to do is uh, I like to occasionally trade gear with friends. You know, just on a uh, tr on a on a try it out basis. Uh -huh. You know, I I I don't make a lot of uh, big uh, equipment purchases couple of big microphone purchases and stuff like that because I really need that kind of stuff around. But as far as the gear lust goes, I, I try not to get 
too married to anything. I mean, I have my preamps and a few limiters that I really like, especially my manly Verimu and distressors and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, when I have an opportunity to like maybe, uh, you know, trade out my manly and try out a Millennium instead from a friend of mine for a week or so, I'll just go ahead and do it. I, I try not to get too married to anything. That's what big studios are for for me. It's like I will find the studio that has the equipment that I really like and work there if mm. I if I need to. Uh, I don't uh, – I've always really loved learning about equipment and uh, and using it and learning how to use it. But as far as the acquisition of gear, it's – Pretty much just the kind I uh, just pretty much focus on the things that I absolutely have to have in order to uh, in order to do my job effectively. Are you making a hundred percent living off of engineering or are you diversifying and doing other other types of engineering, other types of recording, I should say, other than music and or or other jobs? Uh, I am still a hundred percent engineer and right now solely doing music. However, I have just finished mastering three records. So rather than just doing straight recording and mixing, I am starting to to jump into the mastering foray a little bit, which has been illuminating and a lot of fun. And do, have you in the past had any kind of taboo vibes about doing that? No, not really. One of the things I really liked about the Kunaberti podcast was about his, his, his talk about mastering, and I'm just in 100% agreement. When it comes to stuff that I've recorded and mixed, I am really not into mastering it. I really want another objective set of ears to check it out, go through it, uh, do that You know, last 10% amount of work. I've participated in all my mastering sessions um, and uh, have the guys who I really trust and like, and I've learned a great deal from those guys. But when it comes to my own stuff, no, I always prefer to get um, a mastering engineer. But I, I haven't really ever had a problem with the idea of doing mastering. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's fun, um, especially if uh, you are working on a project that is a great recording. And then it's just absolutely a blast. Yeah. What What do you do in the case where you uh, get a real fixer-upper? You do what you can. Uh, <laughs> explain what you're doing <laughs> and do what you can. Just uh, try to like uh, use the tools that you have and your sensibilities to uh, stay true to the recording, but fix it up. I think that's kind of the main thing. Um, mm-hmm. When you're mastering, it's like, I'm not trying to change your project to fit my image. I'm, I'm, you know, the idea is to stay true to the original recording as much as you can and just make it sound better. Equipment-wise, what are you, uh, or software-wise, what are you using to master these days? Yeah, I do a little hybrid thing because, uh, you know, again, I have very mu and stuff. And uh, I also like the GML EQs. But uh, as far as software, uh, I've been using the FabFilter stuff a lot. The compressor, the multiband limiter, and the EQ. They're very linear sounding to me and very clean and easy to use. And easy to use. Good interface. Yeah, good interface, uh, you know, uh, very logically laid out, uh, but with lots of uh, lots of cool features. Like most things in uh, the uh, plug-in world, some of the default settings that they load with are a little bizarre, but uh, with some experimentation, you get over that pretty quick. And are you mastering from your home or you, do you have another place do you go or what's, what's your preferred uh, method? 
Uh, my preferred method is to move around a bit. Um, I will start mastering at my house. I'll do some analog components, you know, maybe some peak limiting or some kind of like soft limiting. I'll do a little bit of EQ at home, but then I will try to take it to a studio. Um, and, and it kind of depends on what I'm working on, what studio I'll go to, but a place that has a, uh, a good collection of uh, upward gear rather than plugins and stuff like that. Uh, but also uh, just to uh, check it out on a variety of different systems and speakers. So I'll move around. The project usually just doesn't live at one place, like my house or at a studio. It, uh, it, uh, it moves around town <laughs> a bit <laughs> before I'm happy with it. Do you travel at all for, for making records outside of the Bay Area? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I'll probably be down in Los Angeles next month. So I do travel a little bit. I'd like to stick around home as much as possible, but you know, that's logistically not always the, doesn't always work out. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's just easier for me to, to go to where the band is rather than, you know, have everybody come here, especially in San Francisco right now with the cost of everything. God, even an SRO is like $90 a night now. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, an SRO? Oh, a single room occupancy hotel oh okay. you know those crazy you know uh dimly lit shabby buildings in the tenderloin yes <laughs> yes okay okay now i know what you're talking about exactly so uh yeah sometimes it's just easier for me to travel and as i said i'll probably be down in los angeles probably next month for a while so tell me a little bit about your your home mix rig and and your workflow at home with regards to mixing you know, what kind of Pro Tools rig do you have? And obviously you mentioned some outboard pieces like your 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 very moo and Yeah, very mu. I've got some uh uh hard, uh upward hardware too that I like. I have a four eighty L um and uh TC M five thousand. I have a couple of AMEC ninety ninety eight modules. I have the Apollo interface distressor. Well, right now, two distressors, uh, a couple of microphones, including a Bach U95. Uh, as far as my workflow at home goes, it's not that much different than the studio. For uh, monitors, my big monitors are JBL, LSR, 20, what are they, 28Ps. They're pretty cool little monitors, and I was lucky to get a pair that are in the composite material enclosure uh, before they changed the, the the style. So they've got plenty of low end without a sub, and they sound very accurate for me. I like the way they sound. So, But as far as workflow, not too much different than any other recording studio situation that I'm in. I'd say that the thing about working at home uh, that one has to watch is the uh, huge level of distraction that can occur. When you're in a recording studio and the doors are closed in the control room. It's very easy to stay focused. At home, any number of things are going to like kind of distract your focus. And admittedly, sometimes I have a hard time with that. I'd say that uh, workflow between studio and home is pretty much the same. Oh, I'm using Pro Tools 11. Uh, well, right now I'm on Pro Tools 10, but uh, Pro Tools 11. So yeah, that's kind of kind of the gear that I have at the house. So. Do you have a Do you have an HD rig or a non HD rig? I have a non HD rig. I again, it's so easy to find a studio with HD, and with the Apollo interface with the uh, Thunderbolt, 
any kind of latency issues are pretty minimized here at the house. It has affected my workflow a little bit in that I have to use the UAD mixer to do some monitoring when I'm recording in order for zero latency. And I have to really, you know, be up on uh, delay compensation and stuff like that more so than I would need to be at maybe on an HD rig. But um, mm -hmm. other than that, yeah, workflow here at the house is very similar to that in the studio. Not too much different. Well, we're both we're both Apollo fans, UA fans. Oh yeah, we are. Yeah, I checked out a lot of interfaces, and uh, the Apollo just won out. I think sonically, it's great. I think the ADs in it are 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 superb. It's super easy to use, and also, uh, you know, there's uh, just a, a a ton of ton of stuff available UAD wise. Yeah, I, I love it. It's also a very sturdy device. There's no doubt about that. Do you still mainly work out of Hyde Street? No, I haven't worked in Hyde Street in about five years. Okay. So again, it's like, uh, it's all about what is going to be working best for the artist. Studio loyalties aside, I've, uh, my first responsibility is to the band. It's to the, to the recording artist. It's to the band. Mm -hmm. I, I have just found other places that, um, that work better for me that accommodate my workflow better, uh, that, uh, that, uh, have more of the equipment that I like to use. Care to name those places? Oh, I really like, I uh, have done a lot of work at Faultline Studios. I've done sessions at uh, 25th Street in Oakland, Prairie Sun in Katadi. Uh, those are amongst my favorites in the city. I still want to try out. I keep talking to Patrick about doing work at Different Fur, but they're very, very booked up. <laughs> it's hard to get a day over there, so... That's great, um, man. And they and and Patrick's obviously got an, a new little room up there with a you know a mix rig with overdub yeah, room. Yeah, and it's it's it seems really cool. Again, though, some of that stuff I could just do at the house just as easily. Honestly, yeah. So yeah, you know, I'm sure it. you find yourself a, sure you find yourself in a similar situation. What I can do at the house, I will. What I need a studio for, I I, I do in the studio. So you know, as 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 time goes along, I just I don't know what your work. Uh, sensibilities are and, and gear sensibilities or attachment to pieces of gear. But I, I'm just starting to really get rid of a lot, not just, I've been getting rid of a lot of stuff for a while and I'm, and I'm now uh, kind of in the final throes of getting rid of a lot of outboard gear and various little things in my life that I'm like, I haven't used that in a year or two years. I need to get rid of it. Well, I think you're in a little different situation than a lot of independent engineers are, that you actually had a real studio. Mm -hmm. You know, you were out there with with a real room, with a with a real situation going on, you know, marketing yourself and your stuff as a studio. I still market myself mostly as an engineer or mixer, and mm -hmm. I come with some nice toys, but I'm not trying to be a commercial studio. So that kind of cuts down on on some of the overhead that I have. I can kind of keep my rig very streamlined. And in fact, I'd say kind of minimal um, in order to like do what I need to do. And then, as I mentioned earlier, just go ahead and hire out when the uh, dynamics of the session are beyond my ability to like just do on my own. So that doesn't surprise me a whole lot. Yeah. Um, especially considering that if you're going to do this right, you're going to spend a shit ton of money. You know, a lot of this gear is very, very expensive, um, especially the gear that's in demand, you know, clearly is going to is going to cost some bread. Um, and, and it's always like, and, you know, the thing about running a studio, too, is that everybody's always looking for the newest best 
or the oldest best, you know, mm-hmm. which is interesting in and of itself. So you're, you're speaking in terms of studios. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's just a different dynamic involved when, uh, I think when you're running a commercial studio, um, and, uh, as opposed to just working freelance. Oh man. Um, I love working freelance a, so much better. Definitely. The overhead is down. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you don't have, uh, Fortunately, right now, I just need to like uh, pretty much pay rent on my storage space in my in my apartment, which in and of itself is difficult in San Francisco. But I just can't imagine having to rent out a whole building for a recording studio on top of all those things, too, especially yeah. in this economy. It's so. a nightmare. I'll just I'll just let you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially right now in this day and age when, yeah. in fact, I just read in the paper about an old toy store on Market Street that's closing down uh, where the landlord has now raised the rent to $40,000 a month. And I read that they're putting in a restaurant and I'm just like, what restaurant in the world can afford a 40 grand nut every month just for, just for, just for their location? Just, just blows my mind. I, 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 my goal is to shrink down my, uh, my overhead to the point where, uh, you know, I'm out of debt and all I've got is, you know, I, I'm, is there I'm just, such a, is there such a thing as being out of debt? Oh man, I know it's, that's, <laughs> I've asked myself that for so many years and now I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I see the light at the end of the tunnel and I'm really psyched about it and it, and it really fuels the fire to continue to pay down the remaining debt. Well, for me, it's always been like one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. You know, it's just like, yeah, I make some progress, then boom, this happens. I make a little bit more progress and then boom, this happens. It's slow, but steady, but I'm, I, I guess I'm getting there too, to some extent. Yeah. For me, it's uh removing, uh, removing the obstacle of, of the gear lust and just saying, okay, if I can't afford it, I can't, I can't buy it. End of story. Stop, stop, you know, justifying any other thought process. Hey, if I could, I want to touch on one, one thing that uh, I was thinking about when you were bringing this up. And, um, uh, what I want to touch on is like the amount of debt I I find kids getting into who are going to uh, recording schools. Yeah, lay it out, man. Um, yeah, these days. It's like, uh, man, I'm hearing, you know, horror stories. Things are a lot different now in terms of audio education than they were when I was getting going in my in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the 80s, I think there was only one degree program in the entire United States for, uh, you know, a bachelor's degree program for people interested in becoming audio engineers and producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there were two. Maybe there was, I know there was Middle Tennessee University and then probably Berkeley School of Music. But again, at Berkeley, I don't think there was much of a focus on audio engineering. Now, pretty much every recording studio or every recording school in the United States is accredited. Yes? I think uh, Full Sail is accredited. Uh, what's the one over in Oakland? Expressions. They just got bought up. SAE, I guess. Mm-hmm. They're accredited. The dynamics of audio education have changed immensely over the last 20 years. Yeah. Back when we were getting going, about the only way that you could get an audio engineering or a, a good audio engineering education was to be an assistant engineer or an intern in a recording studio. Yeah. Now it's totally, you can go to Expressions or any number of these schools. They will give you either a certificate or a degree and 
you're out in the real world. Getting to what my point about the money is, is that you're out in the real world, oftentimes $100,000 in debt in an industry where only the very, very, very best are really able to support themselves. In an industry where you need to have some street credibility in order to like really get work. And to me, it's astonishing that so many of these schools are doing so well, kind of churning out audio engineers who, God, who are hundreds of, you know, maybe anywhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 in debt. To me, that's just nuts. And then you take that, that person who's graduated, that, that graduate, and you put them in a position of maybe they get an intern position or maybe an assistant position. But many times those intern positions are not paid and they want to be present and try to get that work uh, and try to ingratiate themselves to, the, to a studio. But then, you know, economically, they're having a hard time making ends meet Plus, they're trying to service this this student loan debt. So, man, what a what a quandary there! It really is because you know we both know that you know there are only there's only X amount of work, especially in the in 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 the Bay Area. You know, I think that perhaps you might have a, a better opportunity in a larger market just because you know the proliferation of studios in Los Angeles is going to be a lot bigger than it is down here. The thing about that is you're also dealing with a a much larger and more experienced workforce. So still getting the opportunities is really hard. Yeah, um, it's so like that balance of, you know, where should that person go? Should they be a small fish in a, in, in, or a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond uh, as far as what city to be in? Yeah, it's also like, uh, yeah, I mean, that is a huge quandary. And let's face it. It's super hard no matter where you're going to be in order to like to, 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 to do this kind of work. And I'm not sure where I stand on big fish, small pond, uh, small fish, big pond. I think that some of it just kind of depends on your on your history and what you've managed to do. I'm not sure I'd recommend a kid right out of recording studio or school jumping into L.A. as a, as a trying to get first engineering work. That would be very difficult. Mm-hmm. But maybe uh, getting an internship at a big, very well-known recording studio might be something that they could pursue, you know, trying to get an internship, a running running position at uh, Capital or Ocean Way or Conway or any number of places like that. You know, I guess the only the the troubling thing is, is that there's just so many graduates and there's very few positions. It's. It's kind of overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It seems to me that the people who are doing the the organizations that are doing the best are the schools. <laughs> you of know, course, they are. They are doing great. Uh, yeah, studios not so much. <laughs> Recording schools are doing fantastic. I think one thing that the youngsters miss right now that I was able to take advantage of is the whole assisting. Uh, recording, being an assistant recording engineer. I can't tell you how important that was for me. It's one thing to, uh, to, to experiment and try a whole bunch of things on your own, but it's a whole another thing to watch an experienced engineer do his job. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you see somebody who's been doing this for many years, working in a real world recording session environment. It is mind blowing how much you learn so quickly. Not only tricks that you, uh, that, oh, wow, I can't wait to try this, but also failures, like, wow, that didn't turn out so good or that didn't sound great. Um, Those experiences are invaluable. Being able to experience um, other people's workflows, 
pick the things that you like and then kind of like, you know, maybe discard the things that you don't and see the enormous and experience the enormous variety of styles that all of us have to offer. That's getting lost because, quite frankly, studios don't have as, there aren't as many opportunities in recording studios now to uh, be an assistant engineer and to, uh, to, 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 to gain experience that way. And I think that's kind of sad. Imagine if you were um, a musician, let's say you're a drummer or a bass player or whatever, and you buy your instrument and you sit at home and all you do is watch YouTube videos to learn uh, you're and, right, and, right, and exactly. read books. Well, but the value in interacting with a mentor, a teacher to see how they do it and to ha- actively have that, that rapid conversation, that's kind of what, what it's like today, I think, for a lot of engineers, uh, a lot of up-and-comers who they buying the equipment is not really a question. I mean, if you've got a little bit of money, you can put together a DAW, a microphone, and you know, a, a setup to get some stuff recorded. But to ha- how to utilize that, uh, I'd rather not spend the money on the stuff and go and work in a studio with somebody and, and pick their brain. Yeah, absolutely. And also to experience the session firsthand. It's amazing. It's it's really the real world, the real world experience of 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 actually being there and participating seeing what works seeing what doesn't and seeing how fast things happen um, I was lucky I was able to work with like four or five really great recording engineers and it was really uh, eye-opening for me to see just how differently they operated in the studios what their priorities were what were their priorities well I think that uh, actually the the objective is is the same in every case it's just the paths that people take to get there mm-hmm. the style differences the tempo and, and and yeah the basic tempo of the session N- not the song I think you know what I mean the mm-hmm. the pace of the session I think those are the things that really kind of like did it for me and then uh, the attention to stylistic differences and the way maybe two or three different people mix, how they start a mix, where they're, uh, what they consider to be, you know, important versus super important, um, stuff like that. Like uh, I remember doing a session with Joseph Watt and his whole approach was like, well, I just put all the faders at zero basic unity. And then i like adjust the mix on the, uh, on the line trimmers. Right, I do that because then the artist can come in, mess with the faders, and I can always go back to my mix just by going back to zero. Which I thought was well, that's a real interesting approach there. So, hmm. as one example, a style of mixing that I had never seen before and hadn't even really thought about. You know, again with this same guy Joseph Watt, he did a lot of uh, a lot of dance music, and it was just like you know his first one of his major things was man there has to be there have to be elements in the track that are moving around so he had this great old cycle sonics i think what it's what it's called cycle sonics auto panner that was just like god the coolest auto panner i've ever seen in my life i think they're really super hard to find now and expensive but his whole thing was there has to be movement so i kind of like added that to my bag of tricks. Again, that's the great thing about assisting is you're in a situation where you see a whole bunch of different approaches about how you're going to get to that one place that you want to be, the, the, the stellar mix. And you get to add those things to your bag of tricks. 
I guess you can do that on YouTube too, but you can't just say, well, what about this? And have you thought about trying that? You know, YouTube is a lecture, basically. There is no back and forth. When you're an assistant, I think a good engineer is going to expect a certain amount of of, of questions from a good assistant. It is hard because it's it's a one-way conversation there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with YouTube. And, you know, there isn't a Q&A afterwards. And that was kind of, that was important for me, actually, when I was an assistant, uh, was being able to kick it with my engineer after the session and ask questions. And, uh, you know, most of the time engineer was great. You know, John, John couldn't for instance, would like sit down and diagram, you know, on a piece of paper, exactly what was going on, what was it, what his thought processes were, you know, not every engineer did that, but, um, you know, there is that, uh, that back and forth that's really important. I also kind of want to like touch on one other thing too, and I think I would call it the importance of psychology and social psychology in a session. Generally, I think that there tends to be three things that a, a great engineer has, great engineer, great producer has going for him, great engineer, great mixer, great producer, that is, uh, you know, a good, a good knowledge of music and music theory. I don't think you have to be the greatest musician in the world to be a, a great engineer, but it certainly helps if you uh, understand the vocabulary. In fact, I think it's kind of essential to some extent. Maybe not with every style of music. I don't necessarily need to go into theory with a hip-hop guy, but if I'm doing a progressive fusion jazz thing, I have to know what the hell is going on. I have to know what time signature we're in. You know, <laughs> I have to, you know, uh, know my notes and, 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 you know, the chord progressions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think theory, some knowledge of theory and some practical ability is very helpful. Again, I don't think it's essential that you be a great musician to be a, a really great engineer. But again, I think that it is important to have that kind of ability going on and certainly a, 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 a knowledge of the vocabulary. There is a bonus there of, of what's available on YouTube today, because if you are an engineer with no musical ability, it's very easy to go and uh, Google... Um, you know, music theory 101 and really get a grip on the basics just so that, you know, you're, you're aware of what is going on in a session. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, that that's not possible. I'm just saying that's definitely an element of being an engineer. That's important. Mm -hmm. Um, also a love of the equipment, um, and a desire to, to constantly be sponging and, and learning about this stuff and experiencing, uh, and, and experiencing it. You have to love the technology. If you're going to do this, if you're technophobic, man, this is not the gig for you, man. <laughs> it really isn't. So you, need to, <laughs> you need to think about maybe an agreement and lifestyle or, right. or something like that, because uh, you really have to you have to dig this stuff and you have to like want to learn about it um, as much as you can. I would say that, you know, the love of the technology and uh, the ability to interface with the technology and, and uh, you know, uh, that is that is super important. That could be any any of the technologies within the recording world, as well as the technologies on the periphery that uh, aid us like uh, FaceTime or Skype, Dropbox or Hightail. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All the peripherals, all the all the computers, all the hardware, stuff like that. I, I, again, this is my second kind of requirement for doing this kind of work is the love of technology and the desire to learn more about it. Yeah. And I think the third tier, the third important thing is some knowledge and some experience with psychology and social psychology. 
especially if you want to be a producer or if you want to collaborate, but also as an engineer, you have to be able to read people pretty well in order to do this line of work. Okay. You have to know when you're pushing too hard and you have to know when you're not pushing hard enough. You have to be able to recognize when people are, are flummoxed or tired or underwhelmed or overwhelmed or any number of the vast emotions that are involved in this. You got to keep in mind that you're like essentially as an engineer or a mixer, you are helping somebody realize their dreams, which puts them and you in kind of an sometimes in an emotionally sticky situation, but certainly in a situation where a huge amount of trust is required and a lot of communication is and communication skills are super, super necessary and required. You can't push so hard that you send your vocalist out of the room crying, for instance. Uh, I've right? done that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen that happen and I have, I hate to say it, I've done it too. I'm guilty um, of it. Some of the very, very best friendships that I've made in my entire life have come out of the recording studio mostly because of the trust factor. And when you are working with somebody for a month or two months or three months on a record, boy, you get to know them really, really well. And if you can be friends, then it is a magical friendship. We have a passion for engineering and, and it's a it, very easy to get all consumed by it and spend all your time reading gear magazines and gear manuals and uh, messing with you know new technology. But I think it also, um, it's beneficial to try to, do other things and be more well-rounded so that when you are in the studio, you know, you, maybe you're not into sports, but at least you have a concept of what's going on in the world of sports or, or, or reading or movies or the news or politics. Um, although politics in the studio sometimes can be a, a sticky situation. Yeah. Uh, I kind of try to avoid that one whenever possible. Um, that can be a rough one. If all of us, if, <laughs> Perhaps you are doing a wonderful job on the session, but you have a different political viewpoint on something. Boy, that can be a bucket of cold water fast. <laughs> but I tend to agree, though. I think it could be a mistake uh, to assume that everybody's got the same political viewpoint that you do. And, yeah. and even if even if they have a similar political viewpoint, you know, there's disagreements within the same camps. There's, you know, not all conservatives agree with conservatives. Not all liberals agree with, you know, the, the other liberals. Uh, everybody has a different viewpoint. So sometimes unless it's very clear that, you know, everybody in the room is united and it snowballs into a big conversation that, you know, feels comfortable and, and doesn't inf uh, impede the workflow, then, you know, cool. But yeah. I, t I tend to try to like stay neutral and not get involved uh, when when I'm working. Uh, that, when, yeah, you know, when I'm when I'm working, I'm, I'm focusing on the session, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, some small talk about sports is always cool. And and to get to your point about that, I think uh, burnout is something that you know engineers have to watch out for, especially youngsters. But all of us in general, you can burn yourself out doing this. It's important that you take care of yourself, your mind, your body, everything. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing that's been really important for me over the decades that I've been doing this is to try to give my head and ears as much time off as I give them on. That's sometimes not possible, but for your own health, for your own physical health, you have to be careful about that stuff. You have to know when you've reached your limit for work. You know, my limit usually is about 10 hours 
I can sometimes do 12 hours, but I get pretty cranky after 12 hours of doing this. Also, my productivity goes down. I'm more likely to make mistakes or miss something that I probably should have caught. So uh, with that said, getting back to other interests, that is important. I never used to be much of a sports guy. Um, I, you know, you know, growing up, I loved music. Music was everything. And, mm-hmm. I, and I guess to a certain extent, it still is. But when I became, when I started doing all of this professionally, it became really clear to me that I needed to have some other stuff in my life in order to keep my sanity. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed to be able to switch out of music mode in order to function as a human being, in order to function in relationships outside of the studio and stuff like that. So I became a big fan of football and baseball, <laughs> huge fan, you know, um, and love to talk about sports with people. And it's it's a, it's a big surprise to a lot of my friends, a few of my friends who I still talk with in high school. They're just like, you were never into this back in the day. And it's just like, well, I needed to find some other some other hobbies that that I could enjoy to have a more well-rounded life. I like archery. I like playing Frisbee. It's important not to have such tunnel vision that ultimately you don't end up liking um, what you're doing. You know, if I ever, you know, I, I told myself in jumping into this, if there was ever a point where I couldn't listen to music for pleasure, I was getting out of this business. I have to be able to just kick back and listen to music that I like without necessarily giving it the whole critique. I have to be able to listen to music for pleasure. Otherwise, I'm, I'm just screwing myself. What are you working on these days? I have... Uh, a couple of things. Like I said, I've been doing some mastering. I just finished mastering my buddy Micah's, Micah Nine's new album. He's a rapper from a band called Freestyle Fellowship. And I am working on a rock project called Broken Slipper, which is kind of a amalgamation of Helios Creed and Butthole Surfers, Chrome, Hawkwind, that sort of thing. And that's been a, a lot of fun. The, the occasional Qbert session. And stuff like that. I'm getting ready to do a couple of uh, sessions with Jello Biafra, uh, doing some vocals for uh, a couple of uh, records that he's been been invited on to do some cameos. So yeah, you've you've worked of, with Jello for for some time, right? Yeah, I've worked with Jello for over 20 years now. John Cunaberti had been Jello's engineer pretty much constantly before then, but he was in such huge demand uh, from Joe Satriani and other guys that uh, he was. You know, he was spread pretty thin for one guy. So he introduced me to Jello, and Jello and I have maintained a working relationship since then. He's he, Jello is a, a really interesting producer to work with in the sense that um, he produces a lot more like a film director directs, in that Jello is very visual kind of producer when it comes to kind of describing what he wants. Jello's not the guy who's going to say, oh, I kind of hear a triplet delay on this on this part, or uh, maybe we can put some, some, some chorus on it to make it sound more stereo. Mm-hmm. Jello's the kind of guy who's going to say, well, I want the guitars to swirl above a vocal emerging from a murky pool, or this song has got to sound like the mongrel horde galloping across the desert to fight the last battle of the apocalypse <laughs> or something along those lines. So uh, he's a he's a fascinating guy to work with. Well, this has been great, Matt. I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to talk to me here. And yeah, I, I very much enjoyed it and appreciate the opportunity for sure. Excellent, man. Right on, Matt. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, there it is. Another fantastic interview for you. Appreciate you coming by today. 
and taking a listen. Hey, and if you're new to the Working Class Audio Podcast, of course, head on back to the archives because now as we are approaching the 20s, of course, the next episode will be 20, we've built up a little bit of a catalog here of some great people. And whether you're new or old to audio, uh, whether you're in it now or have been in the past, take a listen. There's some great stuff in there, some great stuff to learn. You know, hey, if you're out of it, maybe it'll inspire you to get back in it. And if you're in it, maybe it'll give you a ton of ideas to modify your existing workflow, your business practices, whatever. So there it is. I'll see you next week. Of course, on Monday, trying to make your Mondays a little better here, one podcast at a time. All right. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>